Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases and how we can learn and improve decision making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. In today's episode, Ben Arnold and I have the opportunity of hosting Dan Rasmussen. Dan is the founder and portfolio manager at Verdad Capital. Verdad is a global asset management firm which invests across asset classes following a deep value strategy with a focus on extensive and rigorous historical data analysis. Before founding Verdad, Dan worked for Bridgewater and Bain Capital. He's also the author of the best-selling book, American Uprising, The Untold Story of America's Largest Slave Revolt. We discuss his learnings from the COVID crisis, how to best apply history knowledge to avoid repeating past mistakes, Berdad's extensive use of base rates, the difference between meta-analysis and plain analysis, and growth in the context of valuation. We hope you enjoy it. So, Dan, thank you very much for joining us in the Value Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here. Maybe as a matter of introduction, can you please provide us with a bit of your background? You have quite an interesting experience having worked for a well-known hedge fund. You've done private equity in the past and you currently run your own firm. You also happen to have written a book about slavery in the U.S. in one very particular point in history. Yeah, sure. Well, I, you know, I got in, into investing uh, by accident. My father is a lawyer and he told me to get a job that paid based on the decision instead of being paid by the hour. Uh, so I applied to a number of places and I got a job at Bridgewater. Uh, and Bridgewater, uh, sort of by luck of the draw, takes this sort of deep historical view of markets. So they say study all of history and try to discern the sort of universal patterns that govern markets. I was studying history and literature at the time. So this approach really resonated with me and kind of hooked me on investing. So I thought, wow, it's like applied history, uh, except you make a lot more money than being a historian. So, you know, it sounds great. <laughs> Sign me up. Um, ended up uh, going to Bain Capital Private Equity and did a deep historical study of what had driven private equity returns in the past, which at that point was really a story about deep value, levered deep value in microcaps and private markets, which is fascinating. Uh, and then I left to start my own firm uh, largely because I didn't, I thought that the private equity market was evolving towards this growth model, very expensive companies, a lot of debt. Um, and I don't, I, I didn't think and don't think that that's a very good strategy for the long term. Um, but it's sort of interesting, Juan, as you know, um, you know, deciding in 2014 or 15, you know, gee, I want to go and do deep value instead of growth investing was probably the stupidest uh, career move. Uh, I should have just been all in on SaaS software and, uh, uh, but uh, but in any case, uh, you know, I think there are fads and, and fashions and uh, I've been doing, as you all have been doing, something unfashionable for a few years. But um, but it's something that I think is coming back into fashion, which I hope we'll talk about, you know, the changes that are going on in the value market and um, some of what's driving that. 
Um, so yeah, I've been running for dad since 2014 and we've managed about 700 million primarily in deep value strategies. Um, and we do some interesting things around economic crises, which has been a big uh, growth area for us. So excited to be here and talk about all of it. Maybe before we go into the fascinating world of how to make better decisions under uncertainty, um, given that you are a, a deep value investor and we are deep value investors ourselves, um, it would be nice to understand from your side, how do you understand the value? What kind of, of value investor are you? Yeah, so I think at its heart, uh, I believe in the academic approach to deep value. And I describe the academic approach to deep value as starting from simple ranking, right? Rank stocks by valuation multiples and choose the cheapest ones. I mean, I think that's, I think that everybody calls deep value something different from value because apparently value now means buying you know things that you think are cheap well everybody buys things that they think they're cheap so i don't know how that means anything and deep value <laughs> means people buy things that are actually cheap uh so i guess that's the camp i'm in uh and i think um i would layer on to that uh one general philosophical insight which is that um which i i, I draw from joseph petrosky who's my professor at stanford his his work um which is that there's an intersection between uh uh quality and value. So you want to buy the cheap things that are healthy and not the cheap things that are on the road to bankruptcy. So there, the, you know, value, pure statistical value is a big part of the story, half the story, something like that, maybe more. Um, and then the other half is that aren't going bankrupt, that are fundamentally financially healthy and ideally are improving, right? Ideally are improving. Um, and I'd layer onto that, that our particular expertise here, because of my roots in private equity, has been an interest in levered companies. Um, and I think levered companies are interesting for two reasons. One is that they're, they're, um, you see a lot of them in the deep value world, right? People are worried about levered companies a lot. So they tend to trade really cheaply. So if you look at the universe of deep value, you're ending up with a lot of levered companies sort of by default. Um, and then next, you know, I think we, we know that um, you know, value stocks um, don't always grow as much as growth stocks, okay? Uh, we acknowledge this. So where do the returns come from? Well, they come from the market pessimism and the mood changing, the pessimism turning to optimism um, and the multiple changing. Uh, and when you're levered, um, you get a multiplier effect on that multiple change. Um, so in my mind, the levered deep value is just sort of this esoteric, uh, you know, even more extreme niche within the market. Um, it, it requires a little bit more capacity constraint because you're narrowing the universe a little bit more. Um, but it's a really, a really fun place to invest. And it's a dicey, volatile place to invest. And it's a wild ride. If you think value is a wild ride, and then you try deep value, and then you go to levered deep value. And there's a huge intersection between that and micro caps. So you're also going way down the liquidity spectrum. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fun, bizarre little niche uh, to play in. We, we totally understand the fun side of it. Um, maybe, maybe a quick question on that. Um, you, you mentioned le leverage as part of your... The, the 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 investment universe you are fishing in and one one thing that um comes to mind is the fact that when companies tend to be companies tend to be cheap for a reason either they have suffered an accident at the corporate level or the sector is under pressure or the country where they operate is going through some some sort of situation and then if on top of that you have leverage then there might be the view that those companies might find themselves without the time that they need to turn around because depending on the kind of leverage that they, they have, um, a bank might not allow the company to 
um, implement their strategy so that it, they, uh, it can it can turn around its fortune before they break covenants or that kind of that, that sort of uh, situation. So how, how do you how do you incorporate that in your analysis? Yeah, I think that's what it, it sort of adds to the fun of it, right? Because I think there's more pessimism about these companies. And I think it's a lot, um, there's not just the normal pessimism about value stocks, but there's this added wrinkle that a lot of people just avoid levered companies, right? For all those reasons, right? Leverage is going to reduce the amount of time the company has to turn around. Leverage has bankruptcy risk. Uh, 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 leverage puts financial strain on the company, right? All of these things are true. Um, but leverage is also some benefits, right? Um, I think the first is that it's a financial discipline, right? The company is going to be oriented around cash flow generation and margin expansion, right? Which is generally the things that lead to the growth turnaround stories and value, right? They start cutting costs, um, they start paying off debt, um, and, and then ideally you get some uh, revenue uh, you know, end market change that, that brings things uh, in a good direction. Um, uh, so you're, you're getting this baby thrown out with the bathwater phenomenon among levered companies. Um, and then you're getting this sort of, you know, uh, crucible moment, right? Where, you know, you, you know, it could go really badly or it could go really well. And that's in my mind, what you want, you want the sort of forced catalyst catalyzing effect of that leverage pressure, um, to drive the outcome. Um, but I think it, it doubly makes, uh, the importance of that quality analysis. Okay. So you've got to understand what are the predictors of bankruptcy? Um, you've got to understand how the banks and the bond market are going to look at the company. Um, and you've got to already see evidence of the turnaround. I think that's another thing. And what we look for is delevering. So we look for very strong cash flow statements um, where the cash flow is going to the debt pay down and where we think it's going to continue to go into debt pay down. And we look at that and we say, gee, even if the operational turnaround doesn't take into effect, if the company is generating a 14, 15, 16% free cash flow yield, um, and that delevering alone is going to reduce the interest payments. It's going to reduce the burden on the firm. And then there are a lot of other value investors who, once the debt is gone, will say, you know what, gee, you know, maybe it'll turn around next year, right? So we'll get multiple expansion even before um, before the turnaround happens. So that's really how we think about it. Um, so one thing that you've mentioned before is the, the growth component. And we know that when it comes to financial markets or investing in general, people tend to be divided um, um, when it comes to certain topics and growth is one of them. And when it comes to growth, there's people that either see growth as the most important variable in the investment process. And they believe that there is no such a high price that uh, you should not pay for it. It's priceless. And on the other camp, you might find some people that think that growth is a speculative in nature. It's, it's uncertain. It's very difficult to forecast what that growth is going to be. Hence, you try not to pay that much for it or even get it for free. Um, and I think that value investors tend to find themselves more on the latter camp than the former. And as you pointed out the uh, beginning of our conversation, growth has been having quite a strong run over the last decade uh, to the point that it has outperformed value in many ways. And we, we have started to hear over the last couple of years, and I, I don't know if you have heard this before, but things along the lines of, uh, growth is the new value, uh, transitioning from old value to new value strategies. And some of the old ones like um, growth and value are just two sides of the same coin and value and growth are tied to the hip. So I, I think that you have some strong thoughts about how to think about growth in the context of the investment process. So very keen on, on hearing, hearing that from, from you. Yeah. I think investors like to look in the rear view mirror 
Um, and they say, well, what's worked over the last five years or what's worked over the last 10 years? And that's basically the height of sophistication on an investment committee, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you say, well, you know, gee, Chinese venture capital is really a deep area of interest to me, right? Or, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm really excited about SaaS software. I've always had conviction around, you know, recurring revenue as a driver. Uh, and then they look at value and they say, ah, oh, you know, it's, these things are getting disrupted, right? But if the market had gone the other way, and, and you kind of remember that most of those moves are driven by multiple expansion or contraction, right? So it's mm -hmm. not that actually, the, so indeed, right, big tech has grown a lot, okay? So, so, so let's set that aside because that's just a truth, right? Like we, we've been through this 10-year period where big big growth companies, Microsoft, Apple, grew an astonishing amount, exceeded forecasts, right? There's a real element to why those stocks have done really well. Um, but in a lot of cases, the, the sort of broader picture of growth versus value is a changes in multiple, right? So that change in multiple could have gone the other way and we would have come up with a totally different narrative, right? <laughs> right? Uh, 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 and so, you know, I think that rather than saying, hey, what worked over the last five or 10 years and let's build sort of a narrative to explain that and then project that narrative over the next few years, Right. Rather, we should try to look at long term base rates and the long term scope of history and say, well, you know, how often have, how often has that been true? Right. Like uh, um, what are we sort of what are the drivers of that? And can we predict those drivers more accurately than we can predict the outcome? And I step back and say, um, if you look at the long sweep of history, um, the last decade looks a lot like the 1990s. OK, the, the 90s and the last decade look very much the same, right? You had a long economic boom, um, you had falling interest rates, right? Um, and so um, uh, you had, and you had a big new technological, a lot of technological innovation, right? In the form of the internet, the personal computer in the 90s, um, the cloud, SaaS, internet, right? All these things, you know, internet, whatever, two or 4.0 or whatever that we're calling it now. Um, um, and a huge amount of optimism around that and a lot of speculative technologies like electric vehicles or 3D printers and all, all that sort of thing. Um, and I think what you see is that those types of decades are pretty rare in the big sweep of history, right? You get a lot of other economic environments. You get you get periods like the 2000s where you have two big recessions in the US. Um, you get periods like the 70s where you have uh, a stagflationary environment, right? Um, uh, you, you know, you can have all sorts of different economic outcomes that lead different stocks to perform very differently. Um, and I think over the long term, right, absent a big sort of growth wave and a rising fashion and falling rates and stable economic growth that have sort of driven this sort of uh, quasi bubble behavior in, in technology stocks. Um, absent those conditions, right, the one long term way to manage money in a semi reliable, right, because it's not going to work every decade, right, and obviously the last decade it hasn't worked, but is to find things that are out of fashion that come back into fashion, right, because that's going to make mark money in choppy markets, it's going to make money in inflationary markets, right, you're, you're arbitraging that um, fundamental element of human psychology that never goes away, which is excesses of optimism and excesses of pessimism that come into markets. Uh, and I think there's a lot of maybe the efficient market or index critique, which is another critique of value investing, right? So, we, and, and what's been really interesting um, is that those things have come together because the index stocks, the largest stocks are also the most overvalued stocks and the more money that comes in. So what you see in growth rallies like the 90s or the 2010s is that large cap growth, the biggest, most expensive companies do the best. So it's the exact opposite of what works in value, um, which is why doing long short works so badly. Sorry, Cliff Asnes, right? I mean, you, you don't want to be sort of long, deep value and short, large growth, because when one works, the other, when one doesn't work, the other really works and get burned on both sides, right? Even though it's empirically and, and logical 
logically the right idea. It just re makes it more painful. Um, uh, but but one of the problems, right, with this um, index approach, right? You know, first you've got that overweight, large exposure, but you've also got this conceptual idea around efficient markets, right? Where people say, well, markets are so efficient, right? How, how are you going to make money and beat the market, right? The market, there's this, you know, the right, the price is right on these stocks, it follows a random walk. And I disagree with that, right? I, I disagree with that view of markets, because I think markets are driven by humans. Um, and if you look at any single stock, two very smart investors are going to come to very different price targets and come up with very different DCF models, right? And the more investors you have, the more heterogeneous those forecasts are. And you know what? You can't disprove them. So you can't, like you and I can't go debate our friend who loves Tesla and say, you know what? Those growth forecasts for 2022 are crazy because he says, no, they're not crazy. And until 22 actually happens, neither he nor I will know who's right, right? So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's, we can all have our beliefs about the future and no one can prove us wrong. Um, and what creates market opportunity and market volatility is that precisely that heterogeneity of views. What value investors are fundamentally doing is saying, you know what, I think the world is a little bit more uncertain than you guys think, right? You know, maybe we shouldn't be so pessimistic about energy, right? Like maybe, maybe, just maybe people are still going to be using oil 10 years from now. And maybe, just maybe half the cars driven aren't going to be electric vehicles in 10 years. And those electric vehicles aren't going to be at massively different profit margins than the non-electric vehicles. Maybe, maybe, call me crazy. <laughs> And so maybe we shouldn't have maybe. such optimism about one and such extreme pessimism about the other. Maybe we should just say, ah, I'll take the other side of that bet, right? Knowing nothing about the stocks other than their multiples and the amount of consensus optimism priced into one and consensus pessimism priced into the other. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is, yeah. Dan, um, one, thing, one thing I wanted to ask was the, so I think it was January or February last year, you and your team had written a piece on crisis investing. Sort of, you know, well timed, sort of perhaps six, eight weeks before the the, the COVID pandemic sort of really kicked off. Um, just coming back to sort of decision making. So, you know, just over a year on from that piece of work that you did in this sort of Bayesian sense, we've gone through another crisis since you've done that work. Is there anything on further reflection that you would sort of update that work or anything that's happened in the last year that would change your view about financial crises or? Or has the most recent crisis sort of confirmed the, the findings that you had in that paper? Yes. So financial crises, uh, financial crises are really important for value investors, for small cap value investors in particular. Um, small cap value does absolutely the best coming out of a recession. So as you go from crisis conditions to non-crisis conditions, small cap value just absolutely crushes it, okay? And that's what we've seen over the past year, right? So everything in my paper was right. You know, we've lived, we just lived through it. You know, I was right, great, okay. I'm <laughs> patting myself on the back. But the question, okay, is why? You know, why does small cap value um, do so well coming out of recessions, right? Why do you get paid? Um, and actually, there's been some a lot of academic research on this. So it's not just me being right. It's me reading a lot of other smart people who are right about this. But, um, but if you think about the two things, right, that really drive value returns, right? It's it's pessimism, ch change from pessimism to optimism, right? So there's too much pessimism priced in. 
Um, and then second, when you get some sort of surprising positive growth story, right? So, so the, the, the multiple expansion is even more extreme, right? It's not just, I thought this company was going to decline 10% and it declined 5%. And so the multiple goes up, but, but what, what happens when you said, I thought it was going to go down 10% and then it grew 30%, right? That's when you get the really, really big swings um, in value. Um, and what makes crises so special, right? Big financial crises is that there, there's both of those things going on. Um, so the first thing that, that, that's happening, right, is obvious, clear consensus pessimism. Okay, right, and and you know you're in it, right? It's the only economic situation you know you're in, right? You 100% know when you're in a recession, right? Um, your 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 dad's calling you and saying, should I sell all my stocks? The front page of the newspaper is all about the stock market, right? Um, if you're a portfolio manager, you're drinking an extra beer that night because you're a little bit stressed, right? You've got clients calling and they're worried or angry, right? Like it's obvious, we all know, um, and so the pessimism is priced into the entire market in a really big way, right? And you just see a certain set of obvious behaviors, right? Lending markets close, illiquid things dry up in price, um, certain firms that were, you know, uh, 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 blow up, right? I mean, it's just, you know, a million different predictable things, right? And, and, and they happen every crisis, right? It's just like a textbook, right? You just know it because it's human behavior, right? Humans get scared, they panic, they act the same way. Um, and then the next thing, which is really interesting, right, is that value stocks, especially these days, tend to be in cyclical industries, right? Or GDP linked industries, right? Industrials, consumer discretionary, energy, right? Um, and they're financially often worst hit in a crisis, right? So, you know, they're not these secular growth stories, right? So, you know, if, the, if GDP drops 20%, right? The revenue of these companies is gonna drop 20% or 30% or more. Well, recessions end, right? So then next year, when the recession goes back, you know, when we recover and GDP grows 20 or 30%, those cyclical companies will grow revenues or profits 20 or 30%. And so you have this interesting dynamic where they came into the crisis cheap. They got really cheap because people then hated those things hugely, right? They, they, they hated everything, but they really hated the cyclical things that had gotten hurt the worst and people were most worried about. And then you're buying at the maximum cheapness and then all of a sudden the recovery happens. And you know what? That's the only time when boring auto parts companies grow faster than technology companies, right? Because you have this massive whipsaw and, uh, uh, and, and the economy recovers. Um, and that story has played out every crisis and it played out almost exactly the way it did in every other crisis in this one. And so that's why value investing is so important, especially in times of crisis. And it's why investors should do everything in their power um, during times of crisis to shift money um, into small cap value. Um, uh, it's, it's, the, it's probably the single most predictable um, trade one can make over a macroeconomic or business cycle. Uh, and I think that expanding on that, right, if you take that as sort of an asset allocation view, right, whatever your allocation to value is, triple it in a time of crisis. Um, the natural thing you, you should also then do is think, okay, when I'm not in a crisis, how can I prepare to do that? How can I make sure I have the money to do that? That I'm not reaching out over my skis. I'm not reaching for yield in good times. I'm being a little bit more conservative because I know when other people panic, I'm going to be the aggressive one, buying up illiquid, buying up small cap value, um, going into these sectors, because that return stream is so predictable and so reliable relative to every other return stream there is. Yeah, interesting. I mean, you know, you talk a lot about and, and, and Juan mentioned it earlier, you know, you obviously read a lot of history and, uh, you know, obviously studied it for your for your for your undergrad. I guess one question I have is how do you make sure that you can learn from history, but then aren't um, basing all your future decisions because the future can be a bit more unpredictable? And how do you make sure you try and 
balanced at uh, those two things when you're making your own decisions in investing, but in, in you know, in, in wider life as well. Yeah. So Phil Tetlock has an amazing book, an amazing set of research that he's done uh, where he uh, studies forecasting. And one of the things that Tetlock has found is that experts are no better that non-experts at making forecasts about the future. The only thing that differs is that the experts are more confident. Um, Tetlock then finds that there are certain methodologies that lead to better forecasts. Okay, the methodology that leads to the best forecast is called base rates or historical probabilities. You guys have talked about it in this podcast a lot, so your audience is familiar with this, but it's the only forecasting methodology that works, and investing is a game of betting on forecasts. So if you're an investor, you darn well better study forecasting, okay? You got to know this stuff, right? Like, you can't go and say, well, oh, I, 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 what do you spend your life doing? I'm a professional forecaster. Have you ever studied the science of forecasting? No, why would I do that? Why, you know, like, I mean... <laughs> It's crazy, right? Like, uh, uh, so you got to study this stuff. So, what is that? What is what does Tetlock's work reveal, right? About how we make better decisions, how we use history, right? The way to not use history is to use it to build up a very, very strong and compelling narrative about what's going on and what's therefore going to continue to go on, right? Like, so I have deeply studied the SaaS software market. I'm convinced that SaaS software is you know, ripping out enterprise software. That growth is going to continue. That recurring revenue is the best type of revenue, right? And that, you know, that pattern is just such a powerful economic force. It's going to continue forever into the future, right? Um, what you've noticed about that is it's very recent history. Um, I've used a lot of very specific things to make a lot of very specific forecasts. And there's no probability uh, concept of probability, right? There's no, um, and there's no broad sweep of history, right? I've studied a long period of time, right? What you want to do instead is, is, is look at a long series of historical events. So, right, instead of saying SaaS software, let's say I want to study innovations and I want to look at big mark, big innovations that affect an entire sector, right? And I want to look over a hundred years and I would say, how long does the stock market reward those big innovative things and then what happens when it stops rewarding them and is betting on those innovation waves a good thing right that would be a sort of base rate driven approach and then you'd say well 40 percent of the time it works 60 percent it doesn't here are the up downs when it works and when it doesn't and then you're, you're starting to develop a sense of historical probabilities or base rates around an idea by comparing it to other analogous things in history rather than just developing and building on a very specific narrative about what's going on right now and i think that's the difference between what works and what does it very, very simply. Um, and I think that value investing is, is much more uh, driven by this base rate view, because what we see with investing is that technological innovations come and they go. And when they come, uh, those innovations are adopted by others. Um, those innovations get competed away. There's excessive optimism. Um, and you know, talent and money flow into the most interesting, overvalued, innovative sectors. Um, and what we find is that when money flows into things, it flows in too much, too fast, and leads to crashes. And what you want to look at as an investor is places with capital scarcity. Um, where do people not want to put money? Where do people not want to put money that's offering me a, a reasonable reward for putting money there? Not let me pile. Now, now, obviously, trend things trend, right? So those fashions can work for a period of time. So you know smart to incorporate that as an asset allocator, right? You want to know that, right? You can't just be a value investor. There are other parts of your portfolio, right? And you got to take that into consideration because those trends can last a while, make you look really bad if you ignore them. Um, but over the long sweep of history, um, that's what makes money in markets. Um, and I think that's quite clear from the study of history. And I think the other thing to be aware of 
um, is that we want to take different economic conditions, right? And say, not just, you know, what are the big drivers of economic outcomes? I think it's ultimately it's growth and it's inflation, right? When, you know, is growth doing well or badly? Is inflation high or low? And start thinking about given those economic conditions, which happen in different combinations, different decades, um, how should we then think about um, making asset allocation or investment decisions, right? Um, if we know that we don't know what those conditions are gonna be, but we wanna be prepared for any set of conditions that might come. And that's where I think just a pure sort of backtesting can often mislead us, right? Because backtesting fits a particular pattern of random events, um, right? That we went growth, 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 not growth, inflation, stagflation, right? And, and so we, our backtest says, okay, the best methodology is X. What we really wanna do is sort of step back from that and say, what are the core drivers? You know, what are the fundamental logic underlying our thesis about the way the world works? Are we being agnostic to the things which might have happened randomly and use probabilities to determine those outcomes in a better, more sophisticated ways? So in the past, um, you have mentioned that in the investment game is about meta-analysis and not just plain analysis. And so what do you mean by that? And how is that connected to what you were just mentioning before? Um, we, we live in a world of narratives. And most importantly, how can you, why is this important for people to understand so that you don't make investment decisions based on emotions and stories? Yes. So investing is, is not a game of analysis, but a game of meta-analysis. And what I yeah. mean by that is that it's not important what you think. It's important what you think relative to what's priced into markets. Um, one of the great examples, simple examples is China. Okay, rewind the clock to like the mid nineties. Okay, and you have a crystal ball and someone tells you China between now 1995 and 2021 is going to grow GDP at, you know, whatever it's grown 10% a year. And US GDP is gonna grow at, you know, whatever call it, whatever it happened, you know, two, 3% a year. You know, which market do you wanna choose, okay? And you sit there and you say, well, obviously China. It's the faster growing market, right? It's, it's going, we, we now know with certainty it's gonna grow this fast. Um, why would I put money in the boring old US? Um, but at that time, in the early 90s, it turned out China was massively overvalued and the US was really cheap. And so you made a lot more money keeping your money in the US than putting your money in China over that period, despite massively different growth outcomes, right? So you've always got to step back and say not, um, I believe that electric vehicles are going to get more popular than they are today. But well, what's priced into markets, right? Is, is it that they're going to get a little bit more popular, a lot more popular, both massively more profitably, massively more popular and massively more profitable, right? Like what is, what am I, what am I betting on? What are the odds? You don't just go to the horse race and say, what's the fastest horse? You say, what's the fastest horse and what are the odds? Um, and I think a lot of investment is so driven by narrative thematic investing. Um, and, and, you know, this is often what sells because if you're a, a, a non-investor, you think that analysis is sophisticated. Ah, yes, electric vehicles are coming. I should bet on electric vehicles. Uh, oil is definitely, you know, we've, we've hit peak oil. Oil usage is going to decline. Um, I should never invest in another oil stock again. This makes sense to me, right? But what they're missing is that meta-analysis, which requires a level of financial analysis to say, okay, what's priced in? And how do we think about what's priced in? Well, we think about it using multiples, right? Valuation multiples are the simplest way to think about that, right? What's priced to book multiple? It's EV to EBITDA multiple. It's EV to sales, right? And that's going to tell you roughly what percent of that positive narrative or negative narrative is already priced into the stock at the time you buy it. 
Uh, and that's where I think meta-analysis comes in. Now, meta-analysis can also be applied to narratives or trends, right? So you could also say, you know what? I think the narrative about electronic vehicles is going to get more popular, not less popular. I want to ride that trend, right? That's And that's a reasonable way to invest, right? Look, at there's a lot of evidence for momentum or trend-based investing. So I'm not averse to that, right? But you got to know what you're doing, right? You don't want to be the guy that has such conviction around electronic vehicles that when the market mood changes, you're still in something that trades at 500 times sales when everyone else is running to the exit, because that's going to be, uh, you know, really, really bad outcome for you. Um, and I think, you know, especially in um, the worst performing, you know, the worst performing base rates, right, are for, you know, really, really high multiple stocks that have just really disastrous outcomes, right? And you pair things that recently IPO'd with really high multiples, right? That's like the, you know, real nexus of terrible uh, and you think about well, why is that, right? And you said, well, they're IPOing something in a massive multiple, which means there's massive over exuberant confidence. And those things, you know, you, you'd be better off buying equity in companies that are rated triple C, right? So, right, companies that ratings agencies believe are going bankrupt than buying high priced IPOs, right? <laughs> better outcomes, okay? Um, and I think the reason for that is, is, is because of this meta analysis and how important that is and how important understanding what's priced in the markets before you bet on your own analysis. Um, I'm quite interested in um, the communicating side of that angle because um, despite the fact that you find evidence and factual evidence going back 100, more than 100 years uh, back in time about many of the things that you are saying, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to get that message across to many people in financial markets. Yes. And I think, you know, especially now, one, it's especially now, right? Because what's worked, let's be honest about what's worked up at, well, let's say what's worked until March of 2020. Okay. Cause I think the regime has changed, but up until March of 2020. Don't jinx worked, it. Yeah, don't jinx it. Uh, but what's worked up until March of 2020 has been analysis, not meta-analysis, right? It's been find whatever the hot thing is and bet on it and basically long tech and the bigger the tech company, the better. And, you know, the, the more Momo growth it was, the better, right? That, that's just been the winning strategy, right? Um, one of my friends calls it the dentist portfolio, right? What does your dentist own? Well, he owns Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and he throws in a little Bitcoin and Ether, right? Because he heard about that yeah. from his buddy, right? And the sad thing is that that portfolio has just crushed all of us professional yeah. investors, right? We're just like, <laughs> oh my God, right? It's so the dentist portfolio, right? He's just, you know, he's looking like a genius for now, right? Um, and I think that um, we have to remember that the Scylla and Charybdis of markets, right? The two great threats to your portfolio. Uh, equity portfolio, the two great threats to your equity portfolio are overvaluation and bankruptcy risk, both of which can have the same impact on the stocks you own. And just because we haven't seen, just because overvaluation risk, okay, and we can talk about bankruptcy risk too, which also is sort of a similar dynamic, um, but just because you haven't seen that risk be penalized doesn't mean it's not a risk, okay? The long sweep of markets tells us that overvaluation is a very big threat. Probably the biggest threat to your long-term returns is overvaluation, right? That you just paid too much, prices went down, and you lost money, okay? That's the oldest story in the book. Um, and yet, over the past five or 10 years, overvaluation has been rewarded, okay? The more overvaluation risk, it is risk that you took, the more money you made. And so you step back and say, now people are going for the things that are, you know, they've decided given that, right? Okay, the more risk I take on overvaluation, the better I do. 
Okay, so what does that drive people to do? Well, they take even more esoteric um, overvaluation risk. They buy Dogecoin instead of Bitcoin. They buy Chinese venture capital instead of US venture capital, right? They, they, they trade off, you know, I want less revenue, lower profits, less visibility and higher prices. That's my goal. And if you do that, that has worked. But it doesn't mean it's riskless. It doesn't mean it's riskless. It is a big, big and ever increasing risk to your long term portfolio success. Um, and I think, you know, we could talk a little bit of the same story about bankruptcy risk. And I think a lot of people are worried about sort of the moral hazard, right? Okay, well, if we keep lowering rates, and we, you know, and we keep deferring the default cycle, right? Are we rewarding risk taking and leverage? And I think that's true too, right? Look at the private equity markets, right? It's nuts, right? You know, eight times EBITDA, annual recurring revenue, no covenant loan from a private credit, right? It's just nuts, right? Um, and yes, that hasn't been punished, but it does not believe, it does not mean that it's not a risk and that it's not a very serious risk to your portfolio. And just because you've been getting away with it um, doesn't mean you need to take it and stop taking it into account. Yeah. I have one question about base rates, which you have mentioned a lot in the past. And um, it, it, base rates, like you just explained in one of your uh, one of the the questions we, we asked, are, are very important for the for the investment for an investment process, any investment process. And and so we 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 wanted to understand how do you source base rates and how do you incorporate them in your analysis. Yep. Uh, and in your investment process, so that they are uh, um, a main component of, of what leads to an investment. Yes. Okay, so I think that this is a fascinating question and one I, I, I'm constantly evolving on, but let's start with, um, let, let's think about, um, let's think about equities, right? Just, you know, we're, we're all interested in equities, obviously. So let's use that as a case study, right? So like first order base rate analysis just says, take the cross section of stocks. Okay, so you know, um, uh, every year you take every stock in the market and then you look at what the distribution of outcomes is for owning an, any random stock, okay? Um, that's your, your, your most basic base rate, right? So you could say, okay, well, there's a roughly 30% outcome. I make a lot of money, a 30% outcome. I make, you know, something around zero, you know, 5%, you know, zero to five. And there's 30% outcome, I lose a lot of money, right? And that's sort of, and then over time, the way that ends up working is I make money, right? So now, okay, you've established like a base rate for stocks. Now, when you go buy a stock, right? You now know, oh, okay, like I get it, right? This is the base rate probability of outcome. I think then the sort of second order is saying, well, Base rates are conditional, right? There, there, there are things that meaningly, meaningfully uh, affect the distribution, potential probable distribution of outcomes. Um, so um, the way to think about those, I, I think of those as things that are going to show up as highly statistically significant neuroaggression, right? Um, uh, so those are the factors, right? The classic academic factors, right? So it turns out that if you sample small stocks, you get different outcomes than large stocks. Um, different outcomes that are sort of logical, right? So small stocks go bankrupt a lot more than large stocks. Okay, that's that's you know one finding. And it's sort of intuitive, right? Like how like the restaurant down the street from your house, right? Like how many times has it changed owners, right? It was Italian restaurant, now it's an Indian restaurant, like three months from now it's gonna be a pizza place and you know, every you know, right? So you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. Like restaurants close down a lot. Well, you know, hundred million of market cap companies go bankrupt a lot too, relative to a billion dollar market cap or 10 billion or hundred billion dollar market cap companies are much less likely to go bankrupt, 
right? So there's like an intuitive logic there, right? Or value versus growth, right? Turns out value stocks have a very meaningfully different probability distribution than growth stocks, right? Mm -hmm. Turns out companies with negative free cash flow or negative net income have highly different outcomes than companies with positive cash flow or positive net income, right? So you can look through sort of the scope of history and say, ah, right, I'm conditioning my probabilities on important, knowable, you know, important and knowable um, uh, conditions um, that do meaningfully change the probability distribution of outcomes. That's, I think, the next line of analysis. And what I've really been working on really for the last two or three years has been how do economic conditions change those base rates, right? So how does, okay, I know I'm in the middle of a recession. Are my base rates meaningfully different, right? Does that meaningfully change the conditional probabilities I'm assigning to different outcomes among these portfolios? And the answer to me, and I, I think is, is yes, right? It does make a big difference. Um, it also makes a big difference if there's a massive inflationary spike, right? So all of these different things, uh, you start layering into your conditional probability distribution to come up with a view of what those base rates are. And that's a process that's not, it requires human judgment, okay? It, it does, because you have to say, what, you know, what conditions are, what, what probable conditions am I applying to this? Are they reasonable? What historical analogs are useful to think about? Um, and I think if you think about the approach that most people who are not schooled in this type of thinking take, is they take their own personal lived experience as their source of base rates. Right, their own personal lived experience is their primary source of base rates, which is why you see people say, I'm gonna put all my money in gross stocks and Bitcoin, right? Because I started investing in 2010 and that's been the best outcome, right? I've watched the base rates. I know that value doesn't work and I know that cryptocurrencies do, therefore I take action X, right? Um, what they've gotten wrong is that their base rate is a very narrow sliver of the potential distribution of probabilities, right? So I think what a lot of us are trying to do is expand the scope of historical analogs to say, wow, well, couldn't what happened in Japan happen in the US, right? Isn't that useful to layer in as an analog, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, all of these different economic conditions that have happened. What about the 60s? Could that period happen again? Could the 1930s happen again? Well, hopefully not. But, you know, probably we should probably think about that, you know. Um, and I think that's where um, the historian's art um, intersects with the statistical art. And I think that's what makes investing so much fun, right? You're, 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 you're trying to um, apply both of those um, uh, intellectual schools, history and, and, and statistics um, to make good decisions about the future, um, ideally knowing as much about the past as you can. So um, that's very interesting and it sounds very empirical and very factual. Um, in discussing base rates with Annie Duke in this podcast, she made the point that base rates are an outside view and that outside view becomes more powerful when you combine that with an inside view. Do you allow, because the inside view then becomes a little bit your own experience, your own experience background and your understanding of the situation which you bring to couple with, the, uh, with your base rate. Do you allow that to happen or you just believe in the base rate and you just follow the base rate? No, you know, I'm not a pure quant, okay? And, and I, I get why a lot of people are pure quants. I'm like almost there, but I'm just not quite there, okay? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that you can actually know something about an individual situation. You can actually learn about it. Um, now, that learning you have to be very skeptical of and careful of, and how do you incorporate that into your process? Um, but you can think of, um, I mean, there, there's some obvious examples, right? Like you're looking at... Um, 
you know, you're, you're looking at uh, companies in the middle of 2020 and you're taking into consideration that COVID is happening, right? Like it's, it's a new event, right? So there's not a great set of base rates for a global pandemic, right? So you're sort of like, well, how do I, you know, yes, I want to draw. So, you know, you could say, okay, well, gee, it is a crisis. Therefore I should act as though I'm in a crisis. So that playbook ended up working good base rate, right? But you might've also thought, you know, gee, I should probably adjust my probability distribution, you know, if my statistical work is telling me that the best thing to bet on is like restaurants and movie theaters and airlines, right? Like, maybe I should acknowledge that there's something different this time specifically affecting those companies. And whether I decide to overweight them or underweight them as a result of that, I don't know, but you got to think about it, right? It does, it should obviously impact and play into your decision-making. I don't think you can just step back and say, let me take all that knowledge I have about the world as it actually is in these individual cases and just ignore it. Um, I think that there is a room for an inside view. I think there is room for qualitative judgment because look, let's be honest, there was qualitative judgment in the des designing of the base rates and the algorithms and the historical yeah. data set. Every element of those things had human judgment. So deny it at the very end when you look at the final decision seems also, that may be a little bit disingenuous to me. I like this anecdote that I heard. I think it was in a, in a, in a podcast that um, you were uh, a part of where you were saying that one of the most dreaded questions that you, or a question that you didn't, you didn't like from potential clients was to ask about what was your largest position in your portfolio. Oh yeah. Because, uh, they, the answer might sound a little bit scary to them, but it was a guide that I'm based on. That was what the base rate was telling you to do. So you were yes. following the base rate. Yes. You know, I think it's, it's, it's a horrible place for me, you know, because, uh, you know, if you think about the, the very qualitative investors, right, they've got these amazing stories, right? Oh, the CEO, he's just such a great guy and, you know, blah, 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 right? And I'm just sitting there like, I don't know the CEO's name. Like, I kind of know what industry the damn thing is in. Like, it's in auto parts, but like, try to ask me what, like, I mean, like, I know nothing about cars. So like, I don't know where the part goes. I don't, you know, like, I mean, I literally know very, very little, but I know the financials really well, right? And I know how that matches up against the base rates and that I can talk about, you know, all day long and show you the cash flow statement, right? But like those types of things, which is how most people make their decisions about stocks, right? So if you're matching me up against somebody that's like the world's leading expert in the auto space, right? Um, I'm going to look bad and look dumb and look, and look risky. Like, how do you not know that the converter goes there? Right? Like, I don't even know. Like, do they cars even use converters? I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. But, um, but that's what Tetlock says, right? Like Tetlock says like, you know, the world's leading expert in Russia doesn't really know that much more about Russia than somebody who studied the, you know, a, a set of base rates about Russia. Right. And you see that over and over again. I mean, COVID is such a fascinating example, right? I don't know if you guys remember seeing those, there are these surveys of epidemiologists that came out in like March or April and like 80% of epidemiologists said that they carried their mail in from the front porch with tongs and then like used antibacterial wipes to <laughs> beat like, right. And you're like, wait a second, right. Those are the experts, right. And that was truly nuts, right? These people were like clinically diagnosably insane, right? Whereas like somebody who maybe said, well, gee, like is opening my mail going to kill me? Like my base rate is probably no, right? <laughs> like much better decisions than the epidemiologists, right? And you see this in all sorts of areas where the people that know a huge amount about a topic area don't necessarily make better decisions um, about you know, those, those, it's not like doctors on average live a lot longer than people of equivalent income, right? Like, you know, they don't necessarily make better decisions about their own health just because they happen to be doctors. So you guys have spent a fair amount of time looking at two markets which have strong value characteristics, Japan and emerging markets, which actually happen to be two markets of high interest for us as well. 
How do you think about the issue of market timing and the avoidance of value traps? For instance, Japan has been having a strong run lately and people have started talking about the resurgence of value there. But you could, you could have made that case at many points in time over the last 30 years and got nowhere. Same could apply for emerging markets over the last decade. In the absence of a tangible catalyst, how do you avoid the risk of IRR dilution? So, so I think this is, well, I think part of it is about probabilities, right? Um, uh, you know, the maximum probability you can get in markets, right? If you're getting into like a 60% probability, that's pretty darn good, which means out of 100 years, 40 of them aren't going to work, right? So, you know, I think it's easy to then say, well, does that, you know, does that 60-40 ratio, does the 40 disprove your quantitative base rate driven approach? And you say, well, no, it's kind of confirmatory. But it's a hard argument to make personally, right? Because, you know, I can sit here and say, hey, small cap value is the best long-term investment strategy, okay? I think, I, and I believe it is, okay? And then someone says, well, small cap value has been the worst performing thing in my portfolio over the last decade, right? It's been every time I've tried to do it, it's lost me money, right? So how can you say it's the best thing when it just obviously hasn't been, right? And you say, well, oh, over a long period, and, and people say, well, like the guy over there, you know, made 40% for me investing in crypto. So like, you know, great that you're smart, great that you've looked at this data, but some other guy told me the value doesn't work anymore, right? So you, you have to, you know, reconcile with, with that, right? And I think that really my answer to that is, right, ideally you pair uh, in, in a portfolio, right? You pair a bunch of uncorrelated things that you know should work that have those 60% probabilities, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're a value investor, maybe you say, well, maybe it's a slightly different probability distribution in Europe than it is in the US. Maybe it's a slightly different probability distribution in Japan than it is in the US. Um, and so if those are even not perfectly 100% correlated, mixing them together should give me a higher chance of success. Um, mm -hmm. Or in a portfolio, you know, construction sense, right? Maybe I should think about value and then I should look for other things that also work, right? Um, whether that's trend or, you know, profitability or some other quantitative factor, right? And, and marry those things uh, together to reach a higher chance of success in different economic conditions. So I think just because something hasn't worked over the past few years, right? I mean, if, if, in some sense, value investing, right? If, you, if you'd sat around on March 31st of 2020 and said, well, value investing is finally and conclusively broken, right? We now know that value investing is the worst strategy ever come up with by any investor ever, right? Because we can look at March and we can look at the past three years and we know, we now know value doesn't work. And if you'd bake that bet, look at where you'd be relative to you made the opposite bet that now is the time to double down on value. Markets have this bedeviling way of changing their mind on you, telling you one set of paradigms is right and then the paradigm switches. And so, you know, I, I think that the only way to navigate that with conviction is to look at you know, across paradigms, across cycles, what's worked and what hasn't. Um, because if you bet too hard on one paradigm, um, you're going to feel very, very sad when that paradigm shifts. Dan, we're coming to the end of our session and we always ask our guests two questions. Um, the first one is, can you give us an example of a bad decision or a decision that had a bad outcome where you can identify that decision, that outcome to be uh, because of bad process uh, and not bad luck. Yes. Uh, I think there's a great example here, Juan, which is uh, my wife and I just had our second son. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and we were in the maternity ward and a huge number of the rooms were empty. 
and we started poking around and it turns out there are a lot of articles out there about a giant baby bust in 2021. Um, and if you poke a little deeper, you find out that as soon as COVID hit, for whatever reason, a large percentage of people decided that they didn't want to have children. Uh, and I think this is a bad outcome for society because we need people to have kids. Uh, and it results from a bad process, which is being locked in a house with your husband and wife for 12 months and not focusing on procreation. So I think it's a clear example of a bad outcome uh, that results from a bad process that results from very clear, bad assessment of the situation. What else are you going to do? That's great. That's very Dan, the, the, the final question that we always ask is a, is a book recommendation. Um, Obviously, you could recommend mend your own book. I'd be more than welcome. But is there um, is there one that you always recommend to friends or, or colleagues? Does it have to be specifically related to investing? No, no it can be can be anything. Um, you know, I, I just finished a book by uh, A. O. Hirschman called "The Passions and the Interests," um, which, if you're interested in sort of the history of thought, is a, a really fascinating book. Um, and he builds on the idea of Adam Smith and capitalism that um, that when capitalism came about um, during the Enlightenment, um, people became nicer, right? So that passions, right? You think about the old traditional passions like vengeance or anger, right? You read like the Odyssey. Um, there's all the, you know, vengeance is very important. Rage is very important. And they're celebrated, right? So, you know, someone takes your wife, you go and bash him his head in with an ax, and now you're a hero of an epic poem, right? But once the enlightenment and capitalism emerged, right? The heroes become people like Andrew Carnegie. They, they, they're merchants. They're people who sell things to others. Uh, and it turns out that, you know, acting with vengeance towards your customers or your, your you know, your, right? Or even your competitors to, turns out to be a very bad thing. So he writes about how people's self-interest, the interests harnessed people's passions and how there was actually a, almost a psychological or cultural shift in human society away from people acting on their passions towards acting on their interests. Um, and yet, how we fast forward to today, um, people now believe that everybody is governed by self, rational self-interest, right? And Hirschman does a great job saying, but no, we're people, right? And it, deep down, the passions matter, right? Deep down, loyalty matters. Deep down, you know, th these values are central to the way we position ourselves and live our lives. Uh, and I think if you think about this from an investor perspective, right? Yes, the interests do govern our decisions. Yes, people are profit maximizing. Yes, people are trying to make markets efficient. But at the end of the day, we're people. And we're people that are driven by fear. We're people that are driven by greed. We're people that are driven by all sorts of emotions that we cannot always control. Uh, and that acknowledging that both those interests are very important and can govern and help us make decisions. And yet also we have to be aware the deep role that the passions play in our lives. Thank you very much. That's super interesting. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks so much, Dan.